0: There is plenty of room at the bottom. Hello,
1: and welcome to the Materialism Podcast, an exploration of the past, present, and future of material science and engineering. This is episode 14, and I am Taylor Sparks. I'm here at the University of Utah. I'm in the Material Science and Engineering Department, and as always, I have my fantastic co host, Andrew Falkowski. And this month, We have a new team member that we want to introduce to everybody. We have Jared Duffy, who is our producer and social media manager. Jared, want to say a few words about yourself? I was told I was going to be an audio guru, but I said wait until we're a little farther in to make sure it sounds good so I don't get blamed if it sounds bad. We're blaming him for everything that goes wrong at this point. Mm -hmm, That's right.
2: iTunes reviewer who talked about their ears (laughs) being blown out. You now know who to direct your... Hey, uh,
1: that, that was before I was here. In the future future. episodes, complaints can be directed to Jared. We'll have his email in the show notes. Yeah, that'd be great. The episode this month is on self-healing materials, and we've talked about this before, right, Andrew? Yeah. In our episode on Roman concrete,
2: we discussed this rare mineral known as aluminum tobermorite, and essentially what happens is when this is exposed to seawater, it continues to grow. The whole idea behind self-healing concrete was that if a crack forms, this substance is always continuously growing and will fill it in. If you want to know even more, you should go and listen to our episode on Roman concrete where you can hear all the gory details of it.
1: Yeah, and self-healing materials in general are very much of interest. You know, One of the journals that I've been reading a lot lately, Matter, shout out to the people at Matter, they had a great article on self-healing structural materials. So they call these living building materials where essentially they're putting bacteria in there. It's this cyanococcus, uh, SP, PCC. so I have no idea what that is, but it's a cyanobacterium. And the idea is that it's generating the same materials which you need to increase the strength of these structural materials And they found that basically they last about 30 days, which is pretty cool that it's just getting stronger and stronger over any period of time. And this is longer than what's been done in the past. Mm -hmm. So this idea of self-healing materials, it actually hasn't been around for very long. Um, An article in 2008 said that half of the articles written at at that time were within the last five years. What this means is that this concept of self-healing materials, it's really a 21st century material science concept. It's cutting edge. Um, And you're seeing it in the news all over the place. There's this article, I don't know if you've seen it, talking about the new Lamborghini that's a Lamborghini-MIT collaboration. They're claiming that they have a self-healing vehicle. You know, I looked into it and I don't know if it's actually self-healing. Instead, it's supercapacitors make up the skin of the car. And so if there's a crack, then you can detect it. And so it's sort of like a flaw detecting vehicle, not exactly self-healing, but there's certainly interest in this area.
2: Yeah, I remember when I was in high school, you know, I was really kind of a smartphone enthusiast of sorts. Now, I never owned a bunch of them, but, you know, this was a time when Android phones, there was a very diverse market. And everyone was trying to include some sort of novel feature in their phone to try and separate it from the pack. Um, today, we do not have that. But I remember one of them being a, self, uh, one, a phone with a self-healing back panel. And so the demonstration this video uses, they cut it with a knife and then they, you know, over an hour or so, the back of it would heal. No, I've never cut my phone with a knife. Dude, but. but
1: that's what we all think of. When we think of self-healing materials, it's that dramatic chop it in half, put it back together like like the Hydra. You chop one head off, it just yeah. grows back out again. That's what we want to achieve, and yet that's not yet here today. So, but it was a novel concept at the time. Absolutely. And still is. So what we want to cover today in this episode is, is that the reality? And if not, what would it take for it to be the reality But before we dive into that, we do have to review some basic material science concepts quickly. So let's start with polymers because we're going to be talking about self-healing rubbers. So we need to remind our listeners the basics of polymers.
2: Right. So I think the easiest way to sort of conceive of what a polymer looks like is think of spaghetti noodles. Uh, On your plate, there's a bunch of little strands that are all sort of tangled together into forming some sort of disorganized mesh. And so that's sort of what polymers look like on a microscopic scale where you have essentially long chains um, that are all sort of intermixed like these spaghetti noodles. And so where does the name polymer come from? You know, poly means many. And so what are they many of? There are these units known as monomer units, and essentially they are your basic building block. And so you can connect these through a variety of different synthesis methods, and that's how we get long chains of polymers. But there's more sort of to that. You know, just as if you had a bowl of spaghetti and you grabbed it and stretched it, you can do something similar with these polymer units as well, right? They're just long chains. And so if you were able to stretch um, your spaghetti and get those spaghetti noodles to line up, you can do the same thing with polymers. So there's some degree of mobility with these chains that line up.
1: Yeah, even when they're formed. So not even just like in the molten state, once you actually make a solid out of it, these chains can sort of slide past each other, they can rotate, and that's important, and it's going to be important for this episode as how they can eventually heal again. Um, now, there's also this idea of elastomers, right? So what's the difference between a polymer and an elastomer? An elastomer, as kind of the name is suggesting, are very elastic. They can be deformed very large amounts, you know, 100%, 1,000%. You know, they can go, they can be stretched quite a bit without breaking, whereas a typical plastic, if you imagine like a milk jug, if you try to like clamp onto that with some pliers, it's not going to stretch that far before breaking, but elastomers can't. So what's the difference? Let's go back to the spaghetti noodle analogy. If you've got your spaghetti noodle analogy, what would happen if you sort of drizzled super glue across that, just sort of lightly across the top? You're not gonna link all the noodles, but there's gonna be some links. So if you start to try and pull that clump of noodles apart, there will be things that hold it in place. Those are your cross links. They tie the different strands together. Now, and it's not like they're super, super common. A small fraction can go a long way here. But that process of cross-linking turns a polymer into an elastomer. Right.
2: Oh, yeah. And you can also vary the amount of cross-linking in your polymer. So you'll notice that you have things like rubber bands, right? These are polymers. These are those elastomers. But then you also have, you know, hard plastics. And a lot of these come from increased amounts of cross-linking that prevents Um, the deformation that's occurring.
1: Yeah, they sort of turn into what we call network polymers. If you get them so locked up that they can't move, now they're network polymers. And we're going to have a lot more to say about this. We have a future episode coming up on vulcanization of rubber, right? So... We're going to defer that conversation to a little bit later. But for now, we'll just say that there's lots of different agents that can be involved in cross-linking. Sulfur is certainly one of the most common and highly used ones. The reason why it's the most uh, practical is because it allows for dynamic mechanical properties, right? So if things are being moved like a, like a rubber band is constantly being stretched, it maintains good properties. Whereas other uh, cross-linking agents like phenolic resins and stuff, you don't get that benefit typically. Next, we should say a few words about is CREEP. If you remember creep, that's time-dependent plastic deformation. The classic example is a bookshelf where you put the books on on day one, and it's fine. And then you finish your college career, and you're like, whoa, bookshelf, you're not looking so good. It's kind of doing the smiley face, you know, because mm-hmm. it's bent from the, the long time periods. That's creep. It's just basically like slow deformation. This becomes important for polymers um, because another way to think about this is let's say that a polymer is stressed. You pull on it and you load it. Because the polymer strands can slide past one another really slowly over time, you get what's called stress relaxation. So the initial stress that you load this thing up to, it doesn't actually stay stressed. It's slowly relaxing over time, and that's because of creep.
2: And because of that, we'll start to lose some of the properties as well. I think the next thing we need to talk about is different types of bonding, because when we're talking about self-healing, actually any sort of material bonding is really at the heart of all of it. And so there's several different types, and well, we won't dwell too much on what each of them are. I think the first and most sort of common example are covalent bonds. These are bonds in which electrons are shared between atoms. Examples of these would be two hydrogen atoms, H2.
1: Diamond, you know, mm-hmm. things where the electronegativity is not very different. And so instead of, you know, giving the electron up where one wants it a lot more than the other, mm-hmm. they had to make do. And they got to share it. Um, then you've got ionic bonds. Ionic bonds is when there's a big difference in electronegativity. So like the classic example is sodium chloride, right? Sodium is not that keen to keep its extra electron. It doesn't cost it very much energy to get rid of it, but chlorine really wants that electron so that they both look like noble gases after they've, you know, had this exchange of electrons. So you get a positive and a negative species. And if you've taken first semester of, you know, high school physics, you know that positive and negative, you you get this electrostatic interaction where they're attracted to one another. That's the basis of your ionic bonds. Then you've got secondary bonding. Secondary bonding is kind of like your ionic bonding. Let's imagine you've got a material that can be polarized. So maybe it's got extra electrons on one side, right? So it's polar. Like water is, the, is a great example of this. Water has its H2O, and since oxygen wants the electrons more than the hydrogen, it's going to pull the bonds a little bit one direction. So you end up with a polar molecule. It's positive one side, negative on the other. So it's going to interact with another polar molecule, another water one, and they're going to bond. And these are present in polymers, right? We've got these long chains, the spaghetti noodles. If they're slightly positive or negative on one side, then they're going to bond to other spaghetti noodles, right? And that's the basis of secondary bonding. So how is hydrogen bonding different, Andrew?
2: Right. So this is a special bond that will form between a hydrogen atom and either oxygen, fluorine, or nitrogen. And this is a special type of the secondary type of bond. Um, And the Really the sort of the special thing about these is that if you're able to, if you separate them and you bring them back towards one another, it's able to reform that strong bond just as strong as it was before the bond was broken.
1: Yeah. And I thought it was interesting. There's, if you go to the Wikipedia page, you can read about this a little bit. There's actually general agreement that there's at least a minor component, which seems to be covalent here, not mm-hmm. purely ionic. And these bonds are generally stronger than your average Waals bonding. So they're not as strong as covalent or ionic, but they're not negligible in any way. They're, they can be significant. And those are going to play an important role in today's topic. Okay. Now that we've covered the basics, let's dive into the self-healing polymer world, right? And polymer is a really broad term. So we really need to break that up into rubbers, right? We need to talk about our thermoplastics, and we need to talk about our thermosets. So can you explain some of the differences there, Andrew? Right. So
2: pretty much everything that we interact with, every sort of plastic object, is most likely a thermoplastic. And what this means is that we can heat it up, and it will melt. It will get somewhat – it will get a little less viscous, and we can pour it into different molds and let it cool down, and it will re So I
1: guess in that way, you could say it's self-healing in that, okay, if you got a little Lego man and you chopped his leg off, you could always like melt it and recast it and it's back in business.
2: Mm-hmm, that's right. And it would retain the same properties it had So it doesn't it self-heal, before. but it's, you know, reusable at least. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then the next uh, sort of category here are thermosets. And these ones are a little bit different. So in this case, when we make them, we heat them up in order to harden them and initiate bonding. So with these, if there was damage to it, we couldn't heat them up and, you know, melt them down and do all that again. These ones will just burn. And so in order to actually get these to repair themselves, we have to add some sort of energy to it, not so much that it burns, but just enough that we can sort of, to use one term, shuffle covalent bonds within it, allow all these polymer chains to have some sort of mobility that they can repair one another. So a crack forms
1: in the material, you give it a little bit of energy so that these covalent bonds can form across that crack again. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um no there's another way to do it and this this is where you introduce microcapsules this was innovated in 2001 um, it's pretty cool essentially you have capsules little tiny capsules within your material filled with unreacted monomer so that is you know the crack approaches it hits the mo- this capsule mm-hmm. it releases the monomer and that's now free to polymerize and you've healed your material which is a pretty clever approach
2: right so we've talked about thermoplastics and thermosets but Another sort of category that we can dive into are rubbers. Now, rubbers are cross-linked elastomers, so they're going to be a little stiffer. An example of this are your tires or the soles of your shoes. Uh, for instance, if you if you own any pair of Converse, then the bottom of those, the soles are all vulcanized rubber. Vulcanized meaning we'll get into that in a future episode, but essentially cross Once you have a
1: crack in the bottom of that shoe, you have to toss it out. It's basically done at that point.
2: Yeah. I, I mean I wish my Converse could heal themselves because right now there's a crack growing and I just have to watch it.
1: Yeah. One of my favorite pair of shoes got a hole in the bottom. And if it was self-healing, I'd still be wearing them. So what we really want is smart rubber, right? Mm-hmm. So, If you read about smart rubbers, it is rubbers that can be self-healed. Um, so let's talk about the science of how they achieved this. Cause this really has been a breakthrough in the last decade, right? Mm-hmm. It started in 2008. This was a, a nature paper that blew, that blew this whole field open, right? So here's a summary of how it works. The research group was out of uh, Paris, and the group was Ludwig Leibler's group in Paris. And what's said about it is that their system actually uses relatively few components. They started with fatty acids. These things came from vegetable oils, you know, which is nice because they're renewable. They reacted to these things with diethylene triamine, and then they used urea with them. And this reaction came together, and you now have a sort of transparent, glassy material. It has a glassy transition, so it goes from being a soft, flexible polymer to something that's very rigid at 28C, right, as you cool it down. And they call this a supramolecular network. Because it's made up of these different polymers, that's what supramolecular means. Various different polymers coming together to make the overall network. Um, it's got these dye and trifunctional building blocks with various strongly uh, hydrogen-bonded components, right? So the urea and the amide molecules exhibit strong hydrogen bonding. That's going to hold it together. But the crystallization is prevented because you've got so many different species. So it doesn't crystallize very well, which is what we want to maintain its rubbery properties at high temperatures. The temperature-dependent strength of the hydrogen bonding units resulted in strong decrease of the viscosity at high temperatures. And so this material could be melt-processed into any shape. That's what we want as a rubber. It makes it easy to work with. So up until now, this just seems like, you know, just another thermoplastic elastomer, which is great. Like, it's a nice class. What was interesting about this is that this class of material, they could cut it with a scissor, right? They chop it completely in half. It's not like it's a small crack. This is a macro scale crack. They're able to take this thing. They put the two sides back together again, and instantly it can hold its own weight. And within three hours, it's completely healed. It has the exact same strength essentially as it had in the virgin polymer. So what on earth is going on here? This is a huge difference, uh, which is why this was such an impactful paper. So what's happening here is that you have these hydrogen bonds which have a very high density of these polar groups that can reach and touch one another across the interface. And because there's so many of them, they can very easily find a new partner. What's interesting is that in this initial paper, they actually did some spectroscopy to look at what these groups are doing um, as a function of time. So when they first make the cut, you've got these groups that are very active and want to find a new partner to form a new bond. And if you just let it sit long enough without putting it together, these chains will rotate and it will find a partner on its own side and that kills its ability to form a bond across the crack, right? So there is like a time window that you can do this for. So essentially, the half-life is a couple of hours. If you wait a couple of hours, then you're not going to be self-healing anymore. But if you do it relatively quickly, then they're going to be able to find new partners uh, across the crack and then reform, which is pretty remarkable. Now, this material was amazing, but um, it does have some downsides. Uh, when they loaded it up to 32% of strain, it exhibited zero creep and that's what you want because the rubbers that we use for basically everything have essentially no creep which is great it means that they just don't deform over time And that's important it wouldn't be helpful to have like a fan belt in your car that's slowly stretching out over time that sounds terrible if you ever heard those um, but this material when you load up to 144 percent strain in their initial experiment it did exhibit a small amount of creep so that's not ideal there's going to be applications for this but it's not as good as regular rubber although it can self-heal which regular rubber cannot do. Mm-hmm. And right because of those properties even if you had a little bit of creep they showed that it was
2: nearly reversible like slowly over time like oh, right, that right. creep could be reversed. So it's it does creep but it's not permanent.
1: Yeah, imagine your bookshelf, for example. You load it up with books. It bends into the smiley face. But then when you take your books off, it all it all of a sudden went back. That's kind of what they're describing here, mm-hmm. which is super cool. So obviously this material sounds like something straight out of like a Marvel movie, like completely ridiculous, like Q made it up. Um, and so has it been commercialized? Absolutely. The very same year that it was discovered, uh, there was an agreement made with Arkema, one of the big chemical companies out there, and they commercialized this. It went into production in 2009. And today, you know, there are these, that's called Reverlink. I don't know how they say it. Uh, reverse. Like, it's like they put the words reverse and link uh, together. Reverlink. Reverlink. Yeah, Anyways, that. there's a grade of polymer out uh, by Arkema that's exactly for these things. So they make conveyor belts, ceiling joints, impact protection, insulators, uh, gloves, anti-corrosion coatings, lots of things which could potentially be completely self-healing. So uh, last thing I'll say about this is that the future looks pretty good. I checked out a market research study that showed that the, the the self-healing materials market right now is already at $2.5 billion, and it's growing at its compound annual growth rate is 100%, basically 95%, and it's expected to do so for the next few years. So um, I think that we're just starting to see what industry can do with these self-filling materials as they become available. Mm-hmm. So my question for you, Andrew, is what have they done since this you know, landmark paper in 2008? What's the field done sort of since then? What are some of the papers that caught your eye since then?
2: right since this landmark paper we've seen a number of innovations and different approaches to making these self-healing rubbers, many of them trying to further improve the properties or adapt them to other existing commercially available rubber products. And so we're going to walk through just a couple of really what we thought were interesting papers that cover some of these newer innovations now these are by this is no by no means a comprehensive overview of, all the papers on this that we can go on and on but these are just some sort of interesting ones and we'll be sure to put them in the descriptions you can read further Um, but before we do that why don't we just jump to a really quick break and when we come back on the other side we'll dive right into those hey guys i want to tell you about this episode's sponsor map match Matmatch is a company that's passionate about material science and whose goal is to help connect materials engineers with materials providers and suppliers. For example, I'm trying to select a material with a thermal conductivity between 1 and 5 watts per meter Kelvin. When I enter these parameters into Matmatch's website, I see that they have 74 materials that match these parameters from 11 suppliers. In the results, I can see detailed specifications for each material, including sample dimensions, composition, and related properties. I can then compare several materials at the same time. If you have a MatMatch account, you can now download data sheets, save materials and searches, and save suppliers to your account for quick and easy access later. The whole process is super quick and intuitive, which is probably why their platform is used by over a million engineers each year. Best of all, searching for that perfect material is completely free for materials engineers. Head over to matmatch.com and check out how useful it might be for your next engineering project. Okay, so let's start with the first article. Right, so this one comes from, it's in 2012, Chen et al. and his co-workers at UC Irvine. Now, they describe this copolymer that they've made. Now, a copolymer essentially involves two different monomer units that are combined in some sort of pattern way. I think the essentially what they did was they found a way to sort of combine the thermoplastic, you know, having that very hard, Um, sort of glassy appearance, and then the elastomer, having that stretchability and recoverability, into one. So if you look at – reading through their paper, they kind of show something that has a cobblestone appearance where you have these hard sort of regions and then surround it in tiny little layers, um, the more elastomer region. And these have existed for a little while, but their sort of take on it is – Instead of having this elastomer uh, sort of intermediate region that can't self-heal, what if we were able to replace that with a self-healing elastomer? Okay.
1: So this is sort of like a translation of the original technology. They mm-hmm. said it works for this, but that material is present in other systems like this one. Can we make it do it there as well? Okay, that's cool. Right. What about our next paper?
2: Uh, this one's from 2013, Raman and coworkers from the University of Brescia and Polytechnic of Milan. And their whole thing was they wanted to take natural rubber and make it self-healing. And so what they did to do this was they essentially epoxidized the natural rubber. Okay, so what does that mean? So epoxides are three member rings. You'll learn about them in organic chemistry, and these are highly strained. You know, there's a lot of orbital overlap and whatnot. Essentially they're highly reactive. They don't want to be in this configuration. So what they did was, you know, they recognized that, you know, epoxide natural rubber has low gas permeability oil resistance and has resistance to crack propagation so they thought okay say we up the mole percentage of the epoxidation right these highly reactive rings that are going to be dispersed throughout it okay and they shot bullets at this rubber and tried to do peel tests and what they found was that these tests were enough to supply energy that these epoxides would open up and facilitate bonding or healing in natural rubbers
1: so they kind of again learned from that original paper which had this really high density of hydrogen bonding sites but what they've done instead is just really increased the number of these cross linking agents available to to do the self healing then. Okay, the next article comes from DOS and co workers. It's a 2015 article. They are at the Leibniz Institute for Polymer Forschung and Tampere University in Finland, as well as the Technische Universität Dresden. So, what they did is they extended the work on, on natural rubbers. In this case, Actually, I don't know if it's a natural rubber. So it's, they extended it's, the work on rubbers.
2: It's a commercially available rubber. Um, it's a bromobutyl rubber. Okay. And so these have been used in tires and a lot of other things. So it's not, you know, the standard rubber that's used, but it's commercially available and has applications. But wasn't
1: uh, self-healing in the past. It wasn't
2: self-healing. So what did they do to make this thing self-healing? Right. So their sort of innovation was instead of cross-linking it with magnesium oxide or sulfur to just get your standard cross-link, they decided that they were going to cross-link it via ionic bonding. Now, ionic bonds are special because just like hydrogen bonds, they can be you know, brought back together and reform the bond. But how does that work exactly?
1: Yeah. I mean, you've got your positive and negative charge. In this case, they've got imidazolium bromide, right? Uh, these groups there. As they pull it apart, they, they take their charge with them. So if you're brought back in to near vicinity of one another, especially if there's some mobility the chains to reptate and move around, they're going to find one another and reheal. And some of these videos we're going to be posting on our uh, Instagram feed because they are dramatic. I mean, they chop it with scissors, touch it together, and bam, it's ready to go again. It's really cool. Now, the setting time for it to reach maximum strength, you know, a couple hours, but the fact that it can happen at all, it really feels like science fiction. Mm-hmm. And what
2: was really cool was this ionically modified... Um Bromobutyl rubber actually had superior properties to those of the conventionally cross-linked rubber. Yeah, they were able to get a tensile strength of up to nine megapascals and at at fracture, and an elongation of. 1,000 percent so
1: yeah I compare that to the first paper which is you know it had the self healing property at the cost of creep right mm-hmm. and so if you could start getting an overall improvement it's pretty exciting
2: and I think this is a really smart way of integrating new technologies I think the adoption time is so long on many of these things that it either never happens or we're not we haven't gotten to it yet but being able to integrate it into something that's already commercially available and used and show that has superior properties is a really good yeah. way to not
1: have to have these massive offset or transition costs. Okay. Then the last article we want to talk about was a 2017 paper from the Whites Group at Harvard University. What was so special about this one, Andrew?
2: Right. So a lot of the big problems is that we mentioned that hydrogen bonds are pretty strong, but they're not as strong as covalent bonds, right? Those are going to be a lot stronger in this case. And so their idea was to try and improve the properties of these self-healing rubbers by attempting to incorporate covalent bonds while also retaining those hydrogen bonds that can be reformed. Okay, but this poses a challenge because hydrogen bonds are usually very polar, right? This means that one of them is going to be a little more electronegative than the Uh other, and it's going to direct it, whereas a covalent bonds are usually Uh nonpolar. And so if you remember from chemistry, polar and nonpolar are immiscible. We can't really mix them. Now, the way that we've sort of gotten around this in the past is in what we call wet elastomers. These are things like hydrogels. Um, You can have a co-solvent. So you can have a solvent that's able to dissolve both of these and allow them to mix. But in dry elastomers, which are the ones that we use all the time. Yeah, that's not there. Yeah, we can't use a co solvent. So the way that they sort of get around this is they create this polymer backbone. This is the sort of the structure that everything's going to be built off of that extends in a random branching pattern, right? So how branching sort of works is if you have the polymer chain at one of its ends, you know, it'll connect to more monomer units to form the chain. Okay. But there might be a hydrogen bond on the edge, and it's possible for another monomer unit to take that hydrogen off and bond with whatever the hydrogen was bond to. And so if you think about how a tree branch works, right, you have your central thing and it splits in two. So by having a monomer that can do this, you can get very complex and different properties. Yeah, network
1: proper, a network polymer essentially forms. Mm-hmm.
2: And so this backbone, they especially made it so that it was able to be compatible and bond with both hydrogen. It, it will engage in bonds in hydrogen bonding and covalent bonding. And so because of that, what you had was all these random branches where some of them were connected covalently and some of them were connected, um, you know, through a hydrogen bond. And so that way, you know, not all of your bonds were hydrogen bond, but some of them were. And so you could still achieve those self-healing properties while also maintaining strength.
1: I'll just steal this sentence from the abstract where they end. They basically say this study demonstrates a feasible approach to impart an ionic association-induced self-healing function to commercial rubbers, without the fun- ionic functional groups, which is pretty clever. Mm-hmm. So we've really just scratched the surface. We, we don't want to give the impression that this is all the work that's out there. There are many, many more works that have been mm-hmm. done on self-healing rubbers. And we're going to put a link to a really good review article that goes over all of these papers. And it sort of categorizes them by the, the, the self-healing mechanism that's at play If for those people that want to learn a little bit more.
2: As a professor, I'm sure you are constantly looking for cutting edge research, looking for that next article. What's the next thing going to be? So, have you found anything recently that really, you know, intrigued you?
1: Yeah. So it's funny. Uh, I talk to people about where they get their you know literature review done at because you can go to journals, and that's like the old way of doing it. You would actually like have a journal show up in your mailbox, you'd flip through it and read you know the field. But at least for me, that's not how I find new literature. I honestly find most of it through Google Scholar alerts, right? Um, And then I find the other – a bunch of them on Twitter, right, from my colleagues that I know are publishing my fields. I follow them, and they post it. And I got to say, this week I was on Twitter, and there was kerfuffle because this article went around that's now been – in the four days since it's been out been shared, oodles and oodles of times. Um, I'm just going to read you the title. It says – this is in ACS Nano, which is not a – you know, it's a very good journal, a high-impact, well-known journal. And yet somehow this (laughs) – it's a perspective article, and this title got past the editor. It says – Will any crap we put into graphene increase its electrocatalytic effect? And in the article, it talks about how they literally took bird poop, mixed it with graphene, and showed that it improved its performance, which is bonkers, first off. But, like, that they did this. To me, it's like they're definitely going for, like, an Ig Nobel nomination here. I should nominate them for this because this is something else. Let me just read a couple sentences from the summary here. It says, in summary, we demonstrated that bird-dropping treated graphene's Never thought I'd say that sentence. Indeed, make graphene more electrocatalytic than non-doped graphene. They go on to say, graphene's decorated with bird droppings contain additional nitrogen, sulfur, phosphorus in the material. And then this sentence, because uh, doping graphene with cheap bird droppings produces more electrocatalytic materials than many complex multi-element doping procedures, We do not see any justification for such efforts, and we believe that researchers should just focus their energy on other research directions. Shots fired. Uh, And clearly they're being satirical, and I'll wrap it up with this last thing they say. Like, we believe that there is potential for bird-dropping doped graphene for fuel cells in the hydrogen economy. And we believe that bird droppings can become a high-value-added product such as guano was in the past. One can only hope that with such dramatic advantages, no wars or even trade wars will be started over bird droppings this time, which is pretty hilarious. Yeah. Wait, was a, was a war once started over guano? That sounds familiar. Was would, that like the Spanish-American War? I'll look it up. <laughs> quick fact check me on that. Yeah, quick fact check. But I, I love the fact that they say crap the first time, and then the rest of the time, like, oh, they're they're (laughs) dropping. Yeah, Yeah,
2: now we have to refer to it a scientific way. Hey, I mean, this will probably bolster the value of seagulls. Perhaps no longer will we see them as a nuisance that try to steal our French fries, but instead as a valuable resource
1: that we can extract. I know. We've been wasting this resource. (laughs) Guano Wars. Oh, my gosh. There was a war fought over back The Chincha Islands War. I forgot about this. So... We can hope that we don't yeah. see similar, you know, geopolitical. Outbreak. Oh, it'll be it'll be New York. That's what they're going after. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah all those pigeons. So, uh, anyways, that's a bit of a tongue in cheek, you know. That's a bit of a, a lighthearted yeah, yeah. you know, article that I found this week. There was also a new journal came out, Jax. Right, mm-hmm. uh, Jax has a new sister journal, Jax Gold. They use the chemical element, you know, mm. abbreviation AU. Wow. Jax okay. Gold, which is making a lot of waves because, well, you can form your own opinion on it. But so yeah, that's uh, that's been my week this week.
2: Mm. Talking about self healing really kind of put me in a certain mindset. So this week, uh, for the second time uh, in my car's life's, life lifespan, uh, I've been sideswiped while I've been parked. Now, before any of you try to comment on my parking skills, I'll assure <laughs> you that they are top notch. Anyways, you know, going out to it, you see all the paints like stripped where the, you know, the scratch happened. And you know, a lot of times these cars, you know, the, the primer there is a paint on it, but a lot of times these coverings are polymer based and so it'd be really great to see some self-healing oh, yeah, um, car paints so that i wouldn't Super have to, to go through or that
1: they do it on their own the
2: hours and the insurance issues of trying to get this resolved um, i will note that both times my car has been swiped it's been by a sorority girl i won't comment further but they're dangerous <laughs> <laughs> and you know just talking about our next episode my roommate and I we got a Christmas card from one of our friends and you know it had him and his wife and then at the bottom they're like and introducing and they show one of these sort of these images of what it looks like a baby in the womb but this was kind of early on and it was it was looked like a goblin I was oh, yeah, kind of spooked by it but you know how do you actually get one of those images so we're going to talk
1: all about it next uh, next episode so stay tuned
2: Before we go, we'd also like to announce that the Materialism Podcast is doing its first giveaway. Through our partnership with Matmatch, we are giving away three Matmatch t-shirts for our listeners. If you haven't seen the Matmatch logo, it's really cool. And by extension, any shirt with that logo on it is also really cool. We will put a picture of the shirts on our Instagram on February 5th in case you don't trust my opinions on aesthetics. Now, I can already hear you saying, Andrew, I don't have any MSC clothes. How do I get myself one of these Matmatch shirts? Well, there's two ways you can do it. First, You can leave us a review or follow us on your preferred streaming service. All you got to do is screenshot some proof of the review or follow and send us a picture via email or Instagram. The other way you can do it is go to our Instagram post where we have the t-shirts and tag a friend in the comments. If you're a real galaxy brain, you can kind of figure out how you can enter multiple times here, so I'll leave that to you. Now, we're going to announce the winners on the next podcast and we'll message them to get your size, and we'll get that sent to you promptly, so get on that. A big shout-out to AlphaPod for allowing us to use his music within the podcast. You can check him out on Spotify. And a thanks to Colabyte, who created the intro and outro for the podcast. He makes a ton of really cool synthwave music. And you can check it out at colabyte.bandcamp.com. As always, thank you all for listening. If you have any feedback or have any topic suggestions, send us an email at materialism.podcast at gmail.com. Um, you can also send us messages on Instagram and you should definitely follow us because we put cool artwork and other sorts of interesting infographics or images to help further your understanding and help you learn new things.
1: Yeah, we're trying to post a lot more stories as well as, you know, traditional posts on there, just uh, things that we think are interesting or that relate to the month's episode. So watch for much more presence there. We think it's worth your time to give it a follow. Mm -hmm. And we're also going to start working on our uh, Twitter and Facebook accounts soon and hopefully those will be up and a little more interesting. If you're on those accounts, you can follow us there. I'm not sure what the ads are, but they'll be in the show description.
2: Mm -hmm. and also whichever platform you're listening to on this if you can take the time to leave us a review it really helps us reach a larger audience it helps us improve and you can tell us what we're doing good and what we're doing bad and how we can make the show even better well that about wraps up our episode i hope you all really enjoyed it and we're going to put all the links to those articles we mentioned in the description so if you want to learn even more go ahead and read them
0: The inventors of fire, electricity, magnetism, iron, lead, glass, silk, cotton, the makers of tools, the captors of lightning, the architect, the engineer, the musician are all beneficiaries of the materials of this world and are bound only by their imaginations in manipulating those materials.